everyone, we have Tim Smith with us today from Hanover E. Hi, Tim. Hi, Catherine. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of reinsurance in protection insurance and some key insights into why some underwriting decisions work in ways that the rest of us do not always understand. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Tim, it's a lovely Friday afternoon um, when we're recording. What have you got planned for the weekend? Just something nice? Yeah, it's looking like it's going to be a good one. So maybe a barbecue or two. Um, my daughter's also doing a production of the Matilda musical tomorrow. So we're going to go and see nice. that. That's exciting. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, absolutely brilliant. I think barbecue, it, it is definitely out. It's that thing, isn't it? As soon as you can, barbecue, uh, barbecue weather. I remember when I was pregnant with one of our um, children, I um, I really wanted a barbecue. So we've got this wonderful picture of Alan outside when it was really pouring down with rain with an umbrella of a barbecue. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> and uh, that always makes me think of uh, barbecues. Whenever I think, I always think, right, Alan umbrella. There we go. Um, okay, then. So let's get into things. So, Tim, I think it would be really good to start off with a bit of a background about you and how you got to where you are today as a head of protection at uh, Hanover E. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm an actuary by profession, um, but that probably isn't something that I'd sort of wanted to do since I was five. I sort of fell into it, really. So uh, I did a physics degree and and coming out of that, it just seemed to kind of match my skill set quite mathsy. And so I went for a few graduate jobs and ended up uh, in one that was in the pensions sector. So doing uh, pensions consulting, advising pension schemes and, and companies on how to fund them properly. Um, And then one of the really big risks that they face is people living longer than they expect, because then they'll need to pay their pensions for longer. Uh, And that's uh, a risk that you can transfer to the insurance sector. Uh, So from there, I moved into insurance to a a reinsurer Munich Re uh, to work on what we called longevity risk. Uh, so taking taking that risk from pension schemes, basically. Uh, and at Munich Re, I slowly moved across from the pension space into the protection one. Uh, and then around four years ago, moved into my current role uh, at Hanover Re, another German reinsurer, uh, where, yes, I'm head of protection. So basically responsible for business development, going out and chatting to insurers and convincing them to reinsure their business with us uh, and sort of pricing that business. Brilliant. It sounds like you've definitely uh, gone through a few different areas and routes and sort of getting to where you are. And uh, I think it's pretty much the same for all of us, isn't it? We all say, well, it wasn't what I was expecting to end up in the insurance world, but just kind of fell into it. I I mean, I certainly didn't expect that at all. And uh, again, just ended up coming into it after uni and um, and I've just stayed. It's just one of those things, I think, isn't it? Um, so in terms of things like reinsurance, because I know as an advisor, obviously, I've been working in um, the insurance world since 2010. And it's only really probably in the last four years or so that I've even started to really, I mean, I was aware of reinsurers, but like really be aware of reinsurers. And I think like as a, as a frontline advisor, you kind of generally, you see the insurers and you don't really think about the reinsurers that are behind them. So how do reinsurers kind of fit into uh, the insurance sector? Yeah, so I mean, fundamentally, what we are is an insurer for the insurance companies. So we they pay us a premium, uh, and then we will pay them if there are claims. Um, and there's various ways that that can be done. So the simplest is literally on a policy by policy basis. Uh, the insurer will pay us a premium in respect of each policy. And then if there's a claim on that policy, then we'll pay that claim uh, or a proportion of it. Um, but there's other ways of doing it as well, where you look at things in aggregate and say, okay, if, if claims are higher than we were expecting, then we'll sort of 
pay an amount that that compensates for the insurer the insurer for that extra claim that they need to pay that is above what they were expecting so there's various ways of structuring it but we're basically an, an insurer for the insurance company and and i guess that means that fundamentally we're taking the risk of a lot of those policies or most of the risk uh, most most policies are actually transferred uh, to the reinsurance market uh, and that means that we are also very involved in setting a lot of the rules around what we will take and won't take in terms of risks. So, um, you know, a lot of those underwriting rules uh, are set either by or in consultation with the reinsurer. Um, and, and also the rules around, you know, those that we believe we can't cover uh, for insurance um, are often set by the reinsurer. So, so yeah, sometimes underwriting rules are literally our own underwriting rules, and sometimes it's the insurers, but we'd always need to sort of sign off on them, if you like, and any changes that are happening, because that obviously impacts the sorts of the sorts of risks that we see. Yeah, so the insurer is kind of like you set the, and it's almost like the core manual in some ways, and then the insurers come in and have a look at that and go, oh, we like that, and we like that way they're set up, or they may turn and say, well, we like that, but we might actually want to tweak it a little bit this way. They then ask you, sorry, try and customise it a little bit for themselves. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they might, you know, perfectly reasonable for an insurer to want to take a slightly different approach on certain things. But then fundamentally, that might have pricing implications for us. So if they're if they're wanting to significantly reduce the loadings that they're giving to people with higher BMIs, for example, then, um, you know, there might be good reasons to do that. But it might mean that actually the sort of base premium that we'd want to charge them might be a bit more because we're going to ultimately get yeah. less premium in for that risk. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think as well, though, I think what's can be quite interesting is that, you know, with an insurer, it's not necessarily a case of if you look at one insurer, they're not necessarily potentially fully reinsured by, say, Hanover Re. It could be that like their life insurance would maybe be reinsured by you, but then maybe the income protection would be reinsured by someone else. And I think sometimes it can even be a case of sometimes there can be like maybe two reinsurers that can be used maybe for like one kind of product type. So sometimes it'd be a case of, well, I know sometimes when we do underwriting and, and that with insurers, it'd be a case of they'll say to us, right, well, we tried with one reinsurer and now we've tried with the other. And that in itself as well as an advisor, you kind of like, this sounds so complex. You know, it just it looks like there's, there's, you can imagine just networks and patterns everywhere between it all. It must be um, incredibly logistical making it all work. Yeah, that's definitely true. And the, it is quite complicated. And you do, particularly for very large sum assureds, like large policies, um, they do get sort of passed around the market to see amongst different reinsurers where they might get the best rates um, yeah. or a sort of favourable approach, I guess, to, to that particular risk if, if they've got a particular underwriting outcome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then even just on standard policies, they can be split between two reinsurers. Um yeah, yeah, that's quite common, actually. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's one of those things that I kind of feel like I'd love to be able to deep dive into it and see, you know, really see how it all works. But then I think obviously it just completely boggled my mind if I actually got into it. But uh, I think something that, you know, a lot of people might uh, wonder as well is, in a sense, why do we need insurers in the industry? You know, we've got insurers and it, I mean, obviously, I know our entire the insurers world is all about transfer of risk. So, so what is it that's, you know, why are you guys there? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I totally sort of understand that. That I actually, my uh, when I was working for Munich Re, um, I used to get a discount on car insurance because I think we had some, uh, we owned part of a 
particular car insurer or something and uh, but you had to ring up to get that discount and my wife was ringing up say you know talking to this advisor and he clearly doesn't get that sort of call very often and so they got to while he was trying to find in his system how he applied that discount they were talking about what what it meant what were Munich Re and uh, and she described you know what Munich Re did that they were an insurer of uh, of other insurers and he just sort of paused for a minute and said oh it's funny what you can find to do these days isn't it and I, I think that is a sort of natural reaction it feels like an overcomplication. you know you've got the insurer there to deal with the risk why do you need somebody to insure them and and I think particularly probably since 2008 and everything everybody's you know wary of overcomplication in the financial markets and in the financial sector rightly clearly mm. so uh, so it, yeah it's an important question I think um I think fundamentally it comes down to um, how you how you spread the risk. So if you imagine that you wanted to become a life insurer and say you sell me a policy for say hundred thousand pounds, okay, so that's great. I'll pay you some premiums uh, over time, and then if I die, then you would need to pay my family hundred thousand pounds. Now in that situation, that's pretty risky. Most times uh, you will just receive those premiums, and that will be fine. But but you might need to pay £100,000. So in order to, to be able to do that, you'll need to have £100,000 sitting there in the bank so that if you do need to pay that, you, you can. So um, I guess one way around that is to insure lots of people. Uh, and so then, uh, say you've got a thousand people that you're covering, then you can be pretty sure that you're not going to get a thousand claims in. That would be particularly unlucky um, but so you you've probably got an expect to say you might expect to get 10 claims in out of that so you probably need to uh, to hold the hundred thousand pounds ten times so mm -hmm. hold a, a million pounds to pay those expected claims and yeah. then you probably need to pay a bit more you hold a bit more as well in case claims happen to be a bit you know more than expected but a, an extreme scenario might be that you get 20 claims there so actually you hold you expect to pay out a million you hold another million in the bank but compared to the thousand policies you've got that's a lot more efficient you've got mm. less money in the bank per policy um, and then reinsurance really works because we're sort of aggregating that over all sorts of different risks so with that scenario i just described to you yes that's more efficient than just having one policy but there are still risks that occur that might really badly affect you so for example a pandemic yeah uh, if, if there's a pandemic then that affects all the lives that you're reinsuring and suddenly your claims costs go through the roof so what's better is if you can cover lots of different types of risks so maybe you're in you're covering these life insurance policies and then you're also covering the risk that there's an earthquake in tokyo and the risk that the uh, healthcare costs go higher in australia and the risks that machinery in various factories in brazil breaks down or something like that and then the chances that they all have a bad year in the same year are much much lower uh, and so the amount of money that you have to sort of hold in reserve in case claims are worse than you expect is is a lot lower per policy so it's just a sort of much more efficient and and that money that you have to hold hold back in case claims are worse than expected is money that you're getting from investors so that's that's the way insurers work they have the shareholders and those shareholders put this money up and that money is at risk and, and if claims are higher than expected then they'll lose that money uh, and in order to put that money at risk they expect a return on that mm -hmm. so so the more money that you have to hold there uh, in case claims are worse than expected uh, the more uh, of a return that you're needing to pay to these investors and so the more you can aggregate up these risks 
the more efficient it is, the less the less money per per policy you're having to hold, and therefore ultimately the cheaper it is. Um, and that's that's basically what we do. So we, uh, as Hanover Re, we are active in all sorts of different markets and all sorts of different countries, and we aggregate up all of those risks so that we get that real benefit from being very very diversified. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's all about just, I suppose, as with anything, isn't it? As individuals, we are doing everything that we can to offset financial risk to ourselves. And then obviously we're putting that into another company who's then putting it into another company. And it's, it's obviously, as you say, it's, it's obviously incredibly complex as well, because, you know, if you look at the sort of the base, kind of like the figures that you were saying there, you know, if someone's insured themselves, you know, for life insurance, I mean, life insurance in itself for a lot of people is incredibly cheap. You know, it's, it's you know, potentially, you know, five pound a month or something, you're really, really cheap. And actually, if someone's insuring themselves like £100,000, that's a lot. You know, if someone does pass away, they've not really paid much into that policy to then offset potentially that. So you can understand why there needs to be so much of an interconnection with so many different insurances just to make sure that that bank of money there is a, is a potential because of the fact that with each policy, you know, we've all made a promise to that person that will help them. And you need to make sure that those promises can be fulfilled. Um when we talk about um, protection insurance, um, we often mean obviously personal business and group protection. So I obviously work in that space, but not everybody advised and knows exactly what's going on with those. So, and, and obviously I certainly don't know everything and everyone to be on an end all, especially from a reinsurer's point of view. Um, but sorry, how do all of these differ in terms of underwriting? Yeah, sure. So, um, so you've got group protection. Uh, so that's the pr- sort of life insurance or, or other insurances that you get through your employer. Um, and for those, the uh, the underwriting is very limited, often sort of no real underwriting. So you, you sign up with your employer uh, and you automatically get enrolled typically into uh, a group scheme. And then you've got this life insurance sitting in the background and, and you or the employer pays the premiums for that. And you haven't had to ask that any questions about your health or anything like that. Um, and that differs quite significantly, uh, I guess, to... Um, to individual protection where you need to be fully underwritten so you need to in in most cases answer lots of questions um, about your health Um, I say lots maybe sort of 15 questions something of that order but then it might be that if you answer yes to some of those questions then it triggers sort of additional information that's needed Um, and so it's a lot more of an in-depth look at your health um, and and situation generally actually do you do sort of any dangerous sports or things like that um, to to assess you as an individual so that the insurance company can decide okay how much do we need to charge um, which is related to how risky they view you are as a risk. So that's really, uh, really interesting. And I know it's like thinking a bit as well in the group space. Um, so with group insurance, obviously, it can be a really wonderful way to improve access to insurance with things like the risk pooling that we've been talking about. Um, obviously, people are not usually individually, sorry, have individually assessed and are covered by the insurer, but it can be quite surprising how much this can alter what people can access, um, especially things like, I know one of the things that you have interest in as well as things like genetic testing. So what's kind of the logic behind it? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the beauty of group insurance really uh, is that everybody's enrolled into it. So you join an employer and then you generally you get automatically enrolled and you can probably opt out if you want to. But most people don't uh, through either valuing the benefit or or just inertia. 
So, um, so as an insurer, what that means is that you can pretty much guarantee that you've got a real mix of different risks in there. Some people will have prior health conditions that might mean that they're more likely to claim. Some people might be extremely healthy and they're less likely to claim. Uh, and, and you can therefore price those policies based on what you think the average of all of that is. And you, because you've, you've got this idea that everybody's going to, to come into this pool, you can be quite confident in what that average is. So, um, so you're not too worried about, okay, well, the next person joining might be less healthy, it might pose more of a risk, but then the person after that might be more healthy, is all gonna balance, these cross subsidies are gonna balance. And so that premium you're charging actually is kind of a bit too much for some of the people that are in it. Um, it would sort of on an individual basis, you're kind of overcharging and for some people uh, it's sort of relatively cheap. So that's sort of the beauty of group because you can guarantee that you'll have those cross subsidies. The problem that you have is when you have individual insurance, then if you were to charge the same uh, price to everybody, then um, it would be, uh, you know, say that average price, some people would come and, and look at that and say, oh, well, that looks, you know, I know that I'm very healthy and, you know, do this, that and the other, and I don't have any prior conditions. So that looks quite expensive to me. And some people would have significant health problems and they'd come and they'd look at it and they'd think, oh, yeah, that looks a really good deal. Uh, and, you you know, at the very extreme, you'd have people, say, with very, very serious illnesses who have a very, very shortened uh, life expectancy thinking, well, this is great. You know, I can pay this premium for the next year or so and then my family are going to get this million pound payout or whatever and uh, and so you get a real incentive for the people that are less healthy to buy the product and no real incentive for the people that are more healthy and so that cross subsidy that you were relying on in the group space completely breaks down so you need to um to ensure that you're sort of charging the the right price if that's the correct word uh to each individual to make sure it reflects their the risk that they pose now that's not to say that we we do charge the right price to every individual there's still a huge amount of sort of cross subsidy and pooling that goes on because it would be impossible to really you know assess in huge detail every single individual but we have these underwriting rules uh to to sort of categorize different risks and ensure that broadly we're comfortable that we're charging about the right price and i think you can you know you can have different attitudes to that in terms of what what's fair some people feel like it's more fair to pay the right price uh based on the risk that you pose um and you know with that view you can sort of have a lot of sympathy with it where people are um you know, doing deep sea diving or something like that every weekend. And then maybe, you know, that's a choice that they've made fine. You know, they're happy with that risk and, and good luck to them, but it does pose more of a risk therefore to the insurer. And so people think, okay, reasonable, they, they have to pay more. Um, but there's a lot of things that we underwrite for where, you know, it's not the individual's fault that they've got a particular uh, medical condition, but the fact is they do pose a higher risk to the insurer. Uh, and so we have to charge more for them. Um, but, you know, I guess that's where some people might view, well, the group, the group situation is a bit fairer because everybody gets to pay the, you know, pay the same premium for, for the same cover. The group can be an absolutely wonderful, wonderful option. And obviously in terms of like, um, obviously I work in, in both the personal and the group space. You know, you might get somebody who maybe can't get insurance in the personal space, but actually can be insured through the group space. And uh, and I think, you know, a, a big thing with that as well is that sometimes, you know, for the individual who's applying, you know, it can then seem quite unfair, you know, and it, not, not saying it's unfair because of the insurers, but just generally 
life feeling unfair in a sense because you know if they just so happen to work with an employer who happened to have that mindset of offering that kind of insurance then they'd be in a really good position but you know not everybody unfortunately has that kind of an access um so see, I personally, as most people be aware from the podcasts, um, I do work with people who are considered generally to be high risk and um, by insurers, um, you know, especially with health conditions. And I do go into occupations, pastimes, but the majority of people that I help do have a something that the insurers will consider a high risk. Um, and I think, you know, obviously we're talking about, you know, potentially the personal space, the group space and fair access to insurance. And I think sometimes what people find can find a bit hard is obviously two people might have the same genetic history. Um, I say one's fortunate enough to work for an employer who offers group protection, the other one doesn't. And so obviously they've set up a personal policy, which can seem quite pricey. Um, and I think, you know, that obviously it, it does come down to circumstance. But, you know, I think sometimes people can find it hard because they can feel like it's a really tough balance between being fair to people, predicting the risk based upon their circumstances, and then also fitting in with the insurer stipulations. Because no matter what, those two people are, this, in a sense, the same risk for the insurers, but one of them just so happens to have gone down a career path and, and happened to be with an employer. So in a sense, the insurer, no matter which way, the insurer is still taking on, in some ways, the same risk. Um, so it's tough. I, I think it's really tough for everybody involved in that. I can't imagine it's nice for anyone. No, no, I think that is fair. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess it does. It raises questions about the consistency, doesn't it, of underwriting decisions um, and, and certainly for the individual that's in that situation. I can imagine that does seem quite unfair. Um, and it does. It basically comes back to this fact that with the group insurance, you can rely on the cross subsidy. So, yes, this person might not be able to get individual insurance because they do pose a significant risk. That risk is going to be offset by all the people that don't have those risk factors in the group market. Whereas in the individual market, you just you don't have that same cross subsidy to help to, you know, bluntly to help pay for it um so so yeah it is tough i mean i think there's various areas where the insurance industry has sort of worked to uh to question this and one you mentioned genetics uh and one of them is uh around genetics and and through the abi um the the insurance industry has decided that sort of risk pooling if you like within uh with genetics is is something that we should do is reasonable so so i suppose what i'm saying is we don't uh, differentiate prices of insurance based on if somebody's had a genetic test or not, what the outcome of that genetic test is, what, what that genetic test showed they might be more or less susceptible to. So um, I know you did a, a podcast a few weeks back on this and, uh, yes. and yeah, and there's obviously one exception to that, which is Huntington's and, and there's a lot of discussion in the industry about what this means and is this is this uh, sustainable going forwards with more and more people doing these genetic tests? But that's very much, uh, yeah, that's an example of an area where kind of the insurance industry has decided, well, look, nobody can do anything about their genetics. And, uh, and we should have an approach where we're not, uh, we're not charging people differently based on this sort of the outcome of these tests, which, which in most cases are you know, somewhat predictive, but it, they're not one-to-one. -one. It's not saying you will get this in the future. It's saying you have a slightly higher risk of this, that, or the other. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a really tricky one as well, as I say, because, yeah, but we did do a podcast not long ago about Huntington's, and it, it's really hard as well going between the predictive and the diagnostic tests and trying to, you know, as an advisor as well, trying to make sure that 
we get the right understanding of that from somebody um, going forward. But as you say, you know, it's one of those things that generally, and for people who did miss, miss that um, podcast previously, you know, for genetic testing, insurers don't ask about that unless it's Huntington's disease, um, a predictive test for that. And it has to be over a certain sum assured for life insurance and critical illness cover. And that's quite, that's very clearly stated at the very beginning of any insurance applicable, well, most insurance applications. Um, so, um, so, you know, people who've like a big question that we get is obviously from people with a, um, things like the BRCA gene. Um, so that's the, the gene uh, potential risk for people, obviously enhanced risk of breast cancer um, and whether or not that needs to be included. And again, a predictive test, no diagnostic test is, is obviously different. Um, so as advisors, obviously, we often think in terms of, you know, we look at the applications in many ways. And obviously, the rules were always told, uh, you know, basically, if the insurer asks the question, we must answer it. If the question's not in there or the, the certain scenarios aren't in there aren't being asked, then in a sense, we don't need to, we don't volunteer information in a sense that isn't in the question set. Um, so we know that really the things that we need to be looking for when we're speaking to people are health um, things, uh, lifestyle, so health includes their own health, um, immediate and um, family members' health as well, their lifestyle, so that can be things like alcohol, um, uh, you know, and other things like BMI, things like that, um, occupations and hobbies, um, and also travel. They're the key areas that insurers are looking for for risks. Are there any other areas that insurers are kind of watching statistically to see if there are kind of like new emerging areas for higher risks of claims or anything like that? Yeah, so um, I think it's it's fair to say that across the insurance industry, there's it's a very competitive industry, um, both for insurers and for reinsurers, actually. And there's always the... Uh, sort of race to try and see where you might be able to cut prices, see where you might be able to take a more nuanced approach. Um, and I guess where I say more nuanced, I mean probably differentiate between people where you weren't previously. So differentiate what sort of risk they're posing to you where that hasn't been done in the past. Uh, and in a very competitive environment, what that does is it allows then an insurer to, uh, to write a load of policies, maybe slightly more cheaply for that subset uh, that they now view as lower risk um, and sort of help them to sort of gain market share. So there's always that competitive pressure, uh, but it can lead to quite sort of controversial, if you like, topics being considered. So, so an obvious one, I think, is socioeconomic group. Um, so when you delve into the statistics and, you know, we do a lot of analysis on the claims that we have coming in across the industry uh, and, and what's really driving those claims. And if you look at the distribution of different claims by people's socioeconomic group, then there's a very clear link there. You do get uh, the lower socioeconomic groups will claim more and the higher socioeconomic groups will claim less. This is specifically for life insurance I'm talking. So, um, you know, so I guess there's an argument to say, OK, well, if we're following this sort of risk based approach, then it's logical to charge people that are going to claim more uh, a higher premium. But effectively, what you're saying there is, OK, well, we'll charge poorer people more and richer people less, which is obviously, uh, you know, fairly controversial. Okay, that's not going to be a popular opinion, is it at all? Exactly. Yeah. And but it's something that's done on the flip side in the pensions world. So if you have a pot of money and you come to retire and you go to a pensions provider and say, I've got this pot of money and I want to you know, buy a pension, basically buy an income uh, that will pay out for the rest of my life. They absolutely do take socioeconomic group into account. So right. they will they will look at your postcode and they will base the amount they pay you on uh on where you live and what that says about your socioeconomic group 
but it's a lot less controversial because there because of that life expectancy and the fact that you're paying until somebody dies in that situation and then you stop yeah. paying it's cheaper to provide a pension for somebody in a lower socioeconomic group than it is for somebody in a higher socioeconomic group right so, I have no idea about that I, yeah, absolutely, obviously I don't do pensions so I have <laughs> no idea about that. that's fascinating I'm now really wondering about like what my area would be considered like actually so it's yeah, a seaside exactly. resort <laughs> Yeah, you you could do quite well out of moving maybe just before you (laughs) sort of down at heel area and uh, and maybe get a much better pension. But so it's an example of where some of these risk factors, you know, you can absolutely prove with with the data that we have that they are present, but whether or not you should use them is uh, is a lot more of a a sort of nuanced discussion, I suppose, across the industry And, and things like this because of that that competitive pressure that I was talking about, it's very important that we take or that we discuss these at sort of industry-wide level because as soon as somebody in the industry starts using socioeconomic group to differentiate price, Hmm. then they're suddenly able to offer people in higher socioeconomic groups a cheaper life insurance price than the rest of the market who aren't differentiating. And so they then start to attract all of those lives. And so they see their claim statistics getting much better. And then other insurers who aren't following suit then see their claim statistics getting a lot worse. And so they're sort of almost forced into a position where as soon as somebody does it, everybody else kind of has to do it or suddenly the business becomes, you know, loss making. So um, so it's an example of an area a bit like with genetics, where actually it's important to have industry wide discussion and, and come up with yeah. some agreement. No, absolutely. And I'm assuming I'm just obviously sort of very brief kind of sort of like analysis in my head about this. So I'm assuming then instead of if someone's like a, a higher, obviously, if they've got higher earnings and obviously they've got more access to money, then what I'm guessing from that is that a, probably a good part of the the sort of the reduction of the risk is the fact that they'll have access to things like private medical insurance. They might be, you know, sort of like getting treatment a lot quicker. So things are more preventative rather than reactive. Um, and it's a really tough one because from an insurance point of view and from a statistics point of view, you can see the logic behind it. But then there is that, I have to say there's that human element, isn't there though, of sort of like, does that feel right and I obviously I won't be too controversial to say my thoughts specifically but you know it, it does really it is very very questionable isn't it the idea of them um, of doing that but I appreciate exactly what you're saying though that the market in itself needs to be consistent about what they're doing obviously each insurer and each reinsurer has their own thing their own quirks as to what they do and don't do but in terms of something like that that could be a, a huge change of dynamic um, uh, within the industry as a whole. It's absolutely fascinating, and I'm like really intrigued now. So I'm going to have to start looking into like my pension. I'm going to have to. I'm a good way off, hopefully, for my pensions. But um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm intrigued now about uh, whether or not I, I should be moving or not. I don't think I would. I'm in my forever home. Um, yeah. As we get to definitely an, an interesting one because it is, you know, from a personal point of view, it doesn't sort of sit right with me that you would charge poor people more yeah. or rich people less for something. Uh, and, it, you know, the whole concept of insurance is about pooling everyone together and then, you know, sharing everybody's risk together. But but yeah, it is one of those things that in a competitive industry, you can be forced into doing these sorts of things because even just because you're worried everyone else is, you know, it's yeah. uh, as soon as somebody moves and everyone else has to and then you don't want to be the last to move. So then somebody yeah. moves. It's uh, yeah, it's a challenge. definitely. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, I have to say, seeing as though you've been open with yours, I have to say I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of um, hoping that it doesn't go down that kind of a route. Um, fingers crossed. Because um, I, I kind of feel like access to insurance is tough enough as it is. Let's not make it any harder. Um, but as we're getting towards the end of the um, podcast, um, is there anything else that you would like to share with us, Tim? Anything that's like going on? Anything that you are you, you're feeling excited about? Yeah, so there's a few things on the horizon, I think. Um, we talked about genetics um, and and that's a really interesting space. And we talked about it, I suppose, in the uh, almost like a bit of a negative spin on it in that, you know, it, it poses additional risks and we're trying to sort of pull those risks across the uh, across the industry. But um, but with more and more people having genetic tests, then uh, then it does pose extra risk because basically it means that individuals have much more insight into what they might get than than the insurer does. So it makes it very difficult uh, to price that business. Um, but there are definitely positives on the genetics side as well. So there's um, there's various new treatments coming online now, uh, particularly in in the cancer area, that uh, that you can sort of you can do a genetic test on the on the cancer cells, so not on somebody's normal cells, but on the cancer cells specifically, uh, and use that to uh, to design treatment that's going to be much more effective for them. Um, and, and there's a lot of development work going on in healthcare at the moment on this. Um, and, and the way that healthcare works in this country, um, I guess it takes some time for that to come through. So obviously it takes time to get uh, these treatments to get approved. Um, but then even once they're approved, it takes some time for the NHS to offer them because uh, I have to go through a quite a complicated process with, um, with NICE. Uh, to, that's the body that decides what the NHS will and won't fund. Um, uh, and they have to sort of assess it and decide uh, is there benefit here is they do a sort of cost benefit analysis is it worth providing this treatment uh, and what that means is that there's sort of actually quite a growing gap at the moment between what the NHS provides uh, and what's available in terms of some of these new treatments uh, and so we're looking at uh, potential products um, sort of maybe in the CI illness space or something like that that might help to uh, maybe fund some of these genetic tests, maybe fund some of these treatments if they're not available on the NHS. And they can be actually relatively cheap add-ons to a life insurance policy or to a critical illness policy uh, that, you know, for some individuals could have a really significant benefit if they're able to access treatment. Uh, and we're also working, you know, with various uh, healthcare providers looking at, could we even go one step further and, and give policyholders access to maybe experimental treatments that are coming online and, and then therefore take part in, in clinical trials and things like that. Um, so that's very much in its infancy, those discussions, but it's sort of, I guess it's part of a wider um, movement that I feel is happening where insurers are maybe a bit more interested uh, in the health of their policyholders. So it very much used to be, you know, okay, you bought your policy, we won't talk to you again. And then if, if you need to claim, then we'll pay the claim and, and there'd be no interaction. And I think there's much more uh, collaboration going on now between insurers and their policyholders uh, around health and, and wellness and, uh, and, you know, just doing simple things like making sure that people are getting checked out for things if they've got early symptoms, because, you know, it's, a, it's an area, I guess, where insurers and their policyholders, their interests are really well aligned. Um, because you know, the individuals want to be healthier and want to, to live longer and, and actually the insurers really want that as well. So, uh, so these sorts of products that we're, we're looking at at the moment, I think uh, could be quite interesting and, and could really 
make some changes in this space. That sounds brilliant. It sounds like it's a really good mix of trying to obviously do right, do sorry, get the right insights to sort of really understand insurance risk, but it's also kind of giving back as well and saying, you know, let's let's try and see and get, like get this going forward for people. And I mean, obviously, the access as well to potentially clinical trials would be um would be phenomenal for so many people. Mm. So, really interesting. Well, thank you, thank you so much for all those insights, Tim. No worries. Um, so obviously, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, next time, I'm going to be back with Matt Ran, and we're going to be talking about um, insurance options for people that are living with schizophrenia. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CP certificate on the website too, thanks to our sponsors, the Ox members. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.